Greetings again in Jesus' name. It's good to be here and see all of you. 
I've enjoyed my week with you, and uh, it's hard to believe that today is Sunday already. Appreciated those songs, and I appreciated the emphasis of the devotional this morning. And one thing that stood out to me is this simple thought. And I do come to you today speaking to you as people that are concerned about serving the Lord and wanting to do what He wants you to do and living life to please Him. But in our individualistic mindsets, our thoughts about ourselves and our tendency to self-centeredness, we tend to get the concept that the Christian life is all about me. It's about my happiness. It's about my future, about my heaven, about what's good for me. When Ephesians 1, it talks about the reality of that. It lists there several things that God gives to us. He gives to us His Holy Spirit. He provides an inheritance for us. And time after time, at least three times in that passage, it says it's all for the praise of His glory in that passage. And it's not all about me. It's about Him. It's not about what I can get out of it. It's about His glory, His purposes. And I believe that can be a freeing thought for us. If we can really get a hold of that, it can change our perspective of why we're here, can change our perspective about church life, change our perspective about what happens to us in life, and give us a new sense of uh, direction. So welcome again this morning. I'm glad to see a few folks here from Floyd, uh, home folks. I struggle to know how to handle the time this morning. Uh, a one and a half hour soliloquy would be a long speech. So I'd like to break that up, and I thought we would give two different uh, topics this morning, both somewhat related. And this is a subject that's close to my heart. I believe it's close to God's heart. I'd like to talk this morning about the church and the brotherhood. And during this first part, I'd like to think about this subject, why I need a brotherhood. Uh, a lot here that I've been thinking about. Maybe the next part we can talk more about what the brotherhood looks like and how it functions. The Jesus taught about this. The disciples, the apostles taught about this, what the church of Christ was meant to look like. And there's several beautiful examples, and one was read already this morning by Sonny. There's an example of the vine and the branches. We're interwoven, we're intertwined, we're all attached to one source, receiving life from Him. Paul said the church is like a body, and we're joined member to member, but each one has a unique connection to the head. We have both relationships going on. Peter says, like a building, we're on one cornerstone, one foundation stone, that's Jesus Christ himself, and we're built together like stones in a body to build this living temple in the Lord. Now, whether we're six people or whether we're 200 people, I believe the purpose God has in his church is the same, and that's to glorify him and show the world something of his likeness. The church is designed for something specific. We're designed to be a fruit-bearing body. We're designed to be a a bodybuilding group of people, a God-glorifying temple. And if we take that concept of church life and try to redesign it and repurpose it and retool it, it's like taking a wheel and trying to make it square. It's trying to take pieces out of a watch to make it better. It's, it's like uh, redesigning a hammer to look like something else. When God designed His church and how it was supposed to function, I believe we can improve on that design. And what we have in Scripture's design that is pointed out, and to reinvent it is to regenerate or degenerate it. There's a couple of aspects of the Christian church, and one of the verses that points that out is uh, Romans 12, verse 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, 
And everyone members one of another. Now, if you look at that, there's two relationships going on here. Each one of us is in Christ, and each one of us is members one of another. And those are the two relationships at work in a functioning body of believers. My concern this morning is quite straightforward. I'm concerned that spiritual individualism is affecting the blueprint that Christ designed his body upon. There was a time in Israel soon after Joshua's generation, God said in two occasions, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And some pretty awful things came out of that arrangement. Uh, Micah took a Levite and hired him to be his own priest in his own house and uh, had his own little worship system there, thought God would bless him for it. And uh, he paid this priest and that priest eventually left for better wages somewhere else. And after that it says, every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. Then after Israel destroyed Benjamin and left no wives for their survivors, they uh, came up with some pretty unique ways of making sure Benjamin didn't die out. And after explaining those stories, he says again, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I believe whenever religious people lack a scriptural context of accountability and structure, people tend to revert back to what's right in their own eyes and come up with their own ways of doing things, and they miss the blueprint that, that should be there for their life. There's been a bit of a backlash in our generation against organized Christianity. People talk about organized Christianity. I guess I would rather have organized than disorganized, but church structure, church authority, uh, discipline and the whole concept of membership comes into question and is this necessary and is this the way it was designed to be and uh, the attitude tends to be well we're all holy we all belong to the Lord and I'm not sure why God would speak to one and not to me sort of a Korah attitude sometimes and if none of the 22,000 denominations in the United States suit me well I can go off and start number 22,001 and uh, come up with my own brand of something And uh, the trend is to cut the ties, to be independent, and to celebrate my personal freedom in Christ. There's a couple ways to withdraw from a brotherhood. I was with a a pastor friend in Pennsylvania a few weeks ago, and he was very concerned. He said that uh, here there's a, it's a common thing for membership withdrawal, simply cut the ties, withdraw responsibility, and, and live there, enjoy the social life, and uh, worship where I choose and come and go as I like without commitment, no accountability. It's almost like an open marriage, I guess. No accountability and uh, free to come and go. And I'm, I'm released from that. And he said even older people, uh, people that grew up in churches like yours and mine, uh, tending to do that because there's a certain amount of liberty there. There's another way to do it. A personal withdrawal inside the congregation. I think some people find this, that I'm here because I need a church, but I'm not really that interested, not really that involved, and I'm just a bit isolated and withdrawn and independent, even within the context of a brotherhood. So I'd like to talk this morning on the basis of this question, why I need a brotherhood. And I'm speaking to myself and for myself and of my own experience this morning. I do want to be balanced in what I say, and I know what Solomon said. God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. 
And I want to be careful not to misrepresent. If I say something that you have an issue with, I would ask you to please come and share that, and I'd like to learn something. I believe it's possible for a believer to survive outside of a fellowship. Uh, I don't think it's God's design that it should always work that way. It's also possible to survive on a desert island eating coconuts and raw fish, but there's a lot of dimension in life you'll miss through that. And uh, history has some examples of standalone people. Uh, Daniel was one. The Ethiopian eunuch may have been one, and there may have been others. Because of their unique circumstances and their place in life, you can serve the Lord and survive in the midst of a godless society uh, based on that relationship alone. And that's true. But even Paul's mission work, he was sort of a standalone. He was out there doing his work far from back in Jerusalem and Antioch. But still, he was sent by the church. He returned to the church. He gave a report to the church. He submitted to the church. And uh, he, he sort of had that home base relationship even when he was far away doing mission work. And it's true some are called to stand alone. But I also believe it's true that there's two definite forces at work in our world. One that sows discord and one that drives wedges and one that tears down and separates and isolates. And another one that heals rifts and brings people together and sows harmony and builds up and teaches submission. And over the course of a life, I believe our life will be defined by one of those two forces until it's all said and done. I was given a track uh, last year. I carried around my Bible because I enjoy referring to it. The name of it is Pietism versus New Testament Brotherhood. It's written by, let's see, Jerry Wadle. Some of you might have known him or heard of him. It's an informational thing, but also points out some, uh, some origins of the type of independent spiritual thinking that, that has existed. And uh, some of what I like to refer to in this history comes from that little writing, that track. Now, piety is a scriptural term. Piety means a holy life. But pietism is a form of thought that was born out of the late 1700s, early 1800s in a German uh, state church setting. Now, some of you know this history, and you could correct me and tell it better than I could. But it was born in the concept of this church model. Uh, we talked the other evening about the state church model. If you would draw a line on a map around a certain territory, and everybody inside those lines belongs to this, the church there. And uh, the, the membership was non-voluntary. It was through infant baptism. Now, if you can imagine for a minute, what would happen if you would draw a line around Gladys, 15 miles in each direction, and you would say everybody in that square belongs to this church. And uh, it would include everyone. Uh, it would include the drunkards and the drug addicts and the immoral and the, the people that, well, everyone. And the job of the church is to try to reach out to those people and bring them into a fuller relationship and standing and submission to God as they are members of this church. And the concept there was the, uh, the church was a means to salvation. It wasn't a result of it. Obedience to, to Christ is more of a duty to be done to the church. And the spiritual life was quite dim, and what they experienced is lots of, of blindness and uh, spiritual deadness. So in that context, this concept of pietism was born. There were some, some born-again people in these churches, people that really did care and really did want to serve the Lord, and they were tired of the formalism and the deadness, and they were trying to seek true spiritual life. 
And it was a lay movement. It was not something in the leadership. It was a lay movement. And it was a reaction against this deadness. Now, there was a man back then, Philip Spenner. He was called the father of pietism. If you study your history, you probably knew that. And he outlined some principles that they adhered to that would help them in their quest for a deeper, true life. And uh, he talked about the authority of Scripture over ecclesiastical authority. He talked about the importance of personal and inner obedience to Christ. The need for edifying and practical sermons, not something out of a book. Uh, Personal relationship, devotion to God, and also the need to enjoy personal sanctification. Now, not one of these things is wrong. In fact, this has been the foundation of some of what we've been talking about this week. But one of the major differences between pietism and Anabaptism was simply that pietists thought it could be achieved within the context of the state church and that not leaving that church, they could achieve this goal of deeper life and spiritual experience. But the Anabaptists said they can't do it. They were going to pull out and form a new congregation based on voluntary membership and we're going to try to achieve the same spiritual life, but in a congregation in which membership and commitment is voluntary, and uh, no one is there because they have to be there. That's one reason that the pietists avoided a lot of the persecution that the Anabaptists faced. Uh, they stayed in the accepted churches. They didn't go off and do something drastic. They simply tried to seek spiritual life while they were there. Now, this pietistic thinking affected a great many groups the Moravians and the Quakers and the Wesleys and the Puritans, even the Anabaptists. If you read about the Russian Mennonites in the 1800s were affected by this as well. And much of this emphasis was good and the things that I mentioned you would have no problem with. But as things evolved and transpired, there's some spiritual children that came out of this concept that I believe is still with us Today. Now, one, one of the concepts that come out of this is the emphasis on the individuality of the believer. Now, some of these things are quite true in one respect, but maybe have a deficiency in another. And so don't think that because I'm mentioning this, every aspect of it is wrong. But the concept that individual experience is a validation of my spiritual life. And personal opinion becomes more important than a brotherhood. And uh, this concept that my own feelings dictate and validate my spirituality much more than my relationship with brethren uh, has a profound effect on how people relate to a brotherhood. The person with this thought comes into a group, maybe a close-knit group. One tendency that often happens is this spiritual person would like to make a personal imprint on this group. And often you see them trying to start something, trying to revive something. Sometimes it's evangelism. Sometimes it's uh, extra prayer meetings. And sometimes it's uh, new programs or new things they like to get going. Uh, And when it doesn't happen, the person says, well, this group is so spiritually dead and so legalistic, uh, I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, One tendency that happens is that it's difficult for a person with this conviction to see a need for accountability. It's difficult to come under someone else's uh, influence. And and people that are strongly convinced this way 
tend to go from group to group seeking a spiritual mirage that's out there. They think they can find something that reflects the way they are. And somewhere out there, they're going to find the church that thinks just like I think. And uh, it's a lifelong search. Another emphasis that this thought has uh, put forward is the emphasis on Holy Spirit work at exclusion of the local brotherhood. Now, uh, we need Holy Spirit influence in a direct way. We talked about that last night. But by default, the more I emphasize the way I feel and what I think the Lord is saying to me, uh, the result of that is going to be a decreased ability to hear the voice of brotherhood in my life. And uh, there are some dangers in this. One thing that can happen is a person only relies on his own sense. It opens a person to deception. It can. Uh, it exposes a person to instability of uh, experience-based living. It can. And the other emphasis that they uh, put forward was the invisible church, not a visible church. And uh, the reason this came out was because the pietists were trying to seek spiritual life within this framework of many people that were not Christians and not believers. And so they came with this concept that the, that the only church of Jesus Christ is the invisible one, and only he knows who is and who isn't part of that church. Uh, because they would not come together and worship and study Scripture with people that, that believe the same way. Uh, the Anabaptist view was leave. Let's start a voluntary fellowship with people that we agree with. And their position was let's stay and let's just be part of an invisible group that only God can see. Now, many of these aspects are valid. They were there to promote good changes. But the practical outworking of some of these is, is simple. That many came to be content with claiming full fellowship with Christ, yet having no relationship with a body of believers that function together as a Christian brotherhood. And uh, humans are disappointing, and it's all about me and God, and I'd rather not identify with anyone, I'd rather be a spiritual floater, as it were. I'd like to point out a few things that I find scriptural basis for brotherhood participation. One of the first questions that I have to deal with as I look at these pictures of, of the body and of Christ and the church. In Ephesians 5.30, for we his members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, this, this whole thing is a picture both personal and corporate. If I'm under the authority of the head, I'm also in relationship with a brotherhood, the individualistic person tends to think, well, it's all about me and the head. It doesn't really matter about other people. But the New Testament brotherhood pattern that I see is that being in Christ not only means a spiritual and invisible relationship with Him, but finding a place in the body of Christ that's a visible functioning body. Uh, it's impossible for me to see how I can accept a head without accepting the members. How I can accept the cornerstone without accepting the other building blocks in the body or accepting the vine, but not all the other branches around me. There's somehow a conflict there in my mind. And uh, it's difficult to come to Christ and miss the package of the teaching. <coughs> Excuse me. Some would feel that this body of Christ is always invisible. And I believe there is a, 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 a truth there. 
as a body here, as a believer here, we're interconnected with all of the church in all ages and all times. We're part of that picture. At the same time, when Scripture talks about the church, it's full of specific uh, commands and, and uh, directives of how a, how a body is supposed to work together. Uh, how decisions are made, how they worship, how they gather, how gifts are given for edification, how the church operates. Somebody gave this example once of different denominations. See what you think of it. All these different denominations doing their own thing and doing it their own way. He likened it to an orchestra and the violin part is over here and the cello part is down there and the percussion is over here. And it sounds like they're discording and it sounds like they're clashing. But one day we're all going to be brought together. We're going to be a beautiful symphony when this all gets finished. Is that the way it works? I would rather see it this way. That each body, as it relates and as it meets and as it functions together, is a small representation of what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. So you might have the canon in D major, and if you would spread out the different parts, and we have just the, the bass section, we wouldn't have the canon in D major. It would be just one part of it. If you would take water and put hydrogen over there and oxygen over here, there would not be a representation of water. It's something different. And I believe that wherever God's Spirit is working, He's working to, to achieve the same thing. He's working to bring people into a relationship with Christ, but also build a local body that functions as a reflection of uh, New Testament teaching and practice. The other thing that I see as important in the New Testament is a clear sense of belonging in the early church. There's clear lines there, clear distinctions. In Acts 5, verse 12, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women. Now understand this picture. <coughs> Here was the group. It was a very clearly defined group. Uh, it was not a disjointed cluster, a not committed assembly. And there were clear lines. Some belonged and some were afraid to even come close. Some joined them and the numbers of them grew. And there's a very clear distinction who was and who wasn't. And that was what we get out of this verse in, in Acts. <coughs> in 1 John 2.19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. There's a lot of definition in that verse. Either of us or not of us. Part of the group or not part of the group. And there are some clear understandings of where the lines of fellowship were drawn in that verse. And Paul say, or John says quite clearly the requirement to be of us is to continue with us and among us and of us. The other teaching I find clear in the New Testament is the whole concept of excommunication. I believe whenever a church makes a decision about lines of fellowship, we need to make it as nearly as possible on the basis of how we understand a fellowship to work with God. Uh, and there's some clear directives to that. John says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus said that. 1 John 1.6, if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So there's certain lines of fellowship that we understand that breaks off fellowship from, from God Himself. And uh, 
In Matthew 18, there's this clear depths of distinction and how a church goes about uh, deciding lines of fellowship. Uh, the person that sins and has lost fellowship with God, the church takes three steps. There's a personal confrontation. There might be a group confrontation. And then there's a church decision. And uh, through that, they can decide and they can make decisions on where the line is drawn and who is part and who is not. But if we don't have brotherhood, if we don't have clear distinctions, this would be impossible to carry out. If the church were simply a group of disconnected, distant uh, people, Matthew, a lot of what's in Matthew 18 would be impossible to carry out. It requires a disciplined body to do it. Another teaching in Scripture that points out to me the value of brotherhood is a strong teaching on submission. It's clearly there. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And other verses like that. How would you apply that? And how would you carry that out without a brotherhood context in which to do it? If I withdraw myself from a fellowship, I'm simply sidestepping the need to obey this verse. And uh, if you look at Romans 14, we don't have time to do that this morning. There's a lot of talk in there about the Christian liberty and uh, brotherhood submission and how they need to work together. Um, and there's a couple of things that stand out, and we, I'd love to be able to read this and point this out, but we'll keep going. There's a room for personal conscience. There is allowance in the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ for you to be able to say, this is how I believe the Lord is leading me and practice that without someone else judging and uh, criticizing you. In fact, it says there, who are you to criticize another man's servant because to his own master he standeth or falleth? And so there is room for that. Personal conviction in the body of Christ. There's also time for restraint in the body of Christ for the sake of another person's conscience. And Paul talked about that. If my eating of meat will cause another to offend, I won't eat meat as long as the, the world stands so as not to offend someone else. So the law of liberty is trumped by the law of charity one to another. And personal liberty is called to bow to brotherhood. Now we tend to take Romans 14.17 which says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. We take that verse and we apply it to who we see are the weaker, weaker members. Paul talks about the ones that don't eat certain things or observe certain days. And, and we say, if that person just lighten up a little bit, if that person could just see it a little more clearly and emphasize what should be emphasized, they wouldn't have to do this. But if you look at the context of that verse, this verse is directed toward those that feel the liberty to do those things, not toward the one that feels restrained to not do them. It's directed to the stronger and he's saying the kingdom does not consist in your liberty to do these things. The kingdom consists in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. It's true. Not eating might not gain you anything. It's also true the liberty to eat isn't going to make it for you either. Uh, freedom from observing certain days doesn't make us holier. It's our ability to yield one to another. That's what Christ is all about. That's what he's teaching in this passage. I believe in God's kingdom, the practice of brotherhood is the highest thing, the highest call. 
And there's two paths to isolation, two paths to individuality. One is when I flaunt my personal liberty and I feel like in Christ, I have the liberty to do this and no one may say I may not. And uh, I live this thing and I flaunt this freedom and other people, I don't give a whatever what they think. And what that tends to do is isolate people. People put their guards up. People retreat. And it's, it's hard to, to gain unity with a person like that. The other path toward isolation is thinking, I think I'd be more spiritual. I think I'm better off. I think my children are better off. They don't associate with your children. And uh, I'm about three steps ahead of you. And I believe I have it all together. That's also a path toward disunity. And both tendencies need to uh, be submitted to brotherhood to balance out the strength of that tendency. Now, in giving and taking of submission, there is a time to submit personal liberty to brotherhood. And there is a time to stand for Christian liberty. I think Paul did that. He said, stand fast in the liberty worth Christ has made you free. Be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Our tendency tends to be Let's make allowance for ourselves while holding high standards for other people. I believe brotherhood works the opposite. Let me hold myself to the highest standard and give allowance for other people's growth. Somehow we need to come across of that concept. Now submission to God is a central element to salvation. Easy to falsify that one. Easy to, uh, to imagine that one. But brotherhood submission... That's a practical outworking of spiritual life that we can't pretend and we can't falsify. And I believe that's why God makes such a strong point about this in the context of brotherhood. That's why it's there. I'd like to mention a couple of things here in closing. Uh, why I need a brotherhood. One reason we need a brotherhood is because obedience of faith brings blessing. There's many things in the in Scripture that's impossible to carry out except in the context of being part of a brotherhood, part of a body. And uh, the submission is one. Uh, many commands in Scripture are irrelevant unless they have a congregation in which to do it. Many of the uh, ordinances are that way. Figurative things that represent spiritual truth. And I suppose a person could serve himself communion and wash his own feet and give himself the holy kiss and and do these other things, but it would mean nothing outside the context of brotherhood. It loses its significance. Um, I need a brotherhood because it gives me a context in which to obey Scripture. It would be sort of like taking a, a young man like Nathan and telling him, Nathan, you love your wife. You sit down and talk to your wife. You bring your wife roses. You need to, you need to honor your wife. You need to uh, remember her birthday. And don't forget your anniversary. And he would say, well, I would love to, but I don't have one. Now, he's working on that, but uh, it makes it impossible for him to obey that. And for us to see all these commands in Scripture and not have a brother is like saying, well, you know, it'd be nice, but I really don't have a way to do that. A brotherhood brings me into a position of blessing. We read in Matthew 18, uh, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I believe one person can never accurately represent the body of Christ. 
It takes two or three because it can only, a person can't submit to himself. It takes two or three to make this work out together. It doesn't matter if there's but two or three, but that can be a representation of the body of Christ and how it works. I believe God works in individuals and works through individuals. You need to be open to that. But I believe that brotherhood participation opens me to blessings and richness that I would not otherwise experience. Brotherhood guards me from the extremes of my tendencies. We have extreme tendencies. Uh, but it balances our perspective. It even challenges my expectations of myself. When I came home from Guatemala, I was blessed to sit in the congregation and watch other people raise their children and think, you know, I could learn something from that. And hear other people give a devotions and preach a message and say, you know, I really need to hear that. And see how other people discipline themselves and run their finances. and uh, That's one thing that brotherhood is good for. It helps to challenge my expectation of myself. It's a tether to our strengths. Sometimes I think that visionaries and cautionaries do best when they're tethered together because uh, they need each other. A visionary can blaze off into the sunset and leave chaos behind him unless there's some cautionaries there to help work this out. I believe that's one reason you need a brotherhood. It challenges my weaknesses. So in closing... I need a brotherhood because I believe that's the way Christ is glorified in the world. Ephesians 3.21 says, Unto Him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We want to glorify Christ. It's done in this context. Uh, we need to commit to showing the world how the body functions. And God is glorified through that. The brotherhood is much like a marriage. The deeper the commitment, the deeper the satisfaction. And uh, a non-committal attitude is detrimental both to the church and to myself because it limits what God could do in me through the rest. So God bless you and thank you for your attention.